Welcome to Open Plaza, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. For more information about today's episode, visit htiopenplaza.org. Welcome to Open Plaza, a podcast of the Hispanic Theological Initiative at Princeton Theological Seminary. My name is Tony Lin, and I am here today with Reverend Lorenzo Lebrija. He is the Chief Innovation Officer at Virginia Theological Seminary and the Director of TriTank, the Experimental Lab at Virginia Theological Seminary. Welcome, Lorenzo. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Ah, where do I start? It all began now. It's uh, <laughs> I am uh, I'm an Episcopal priest. I am based in Los Angeles. I am with the Diocese of San Diego, and although I've had uh, ministry settings in in congregations for the last five years, I've been the executive director for TriTank, where we partner with congregations around the country. We have about five hundred partner congregations at this point. We partner around the country to try to figure out where's the future sort of heading, if you will, not to predict, but what's plausible, right? If things if things continue as they are, what's likely to happen in the next 10 years or so? And we try to do experiments for the futures that we do like to say, like, oh, how do we help make that happen? And for the things that we don't like, for example, the fact that we have very few young people in churches, how do we sort of go out and change that future so that in 10 years' time, we're not caught behind a, an eight ball and unable to to change course by then so that it will be too late. Not that we're an answer to any problems or anything like that, but just trying to be uh, figure out where's the Holy Spirit in this work and how can we move forward following the Holy Spirit faithfully, but also being innovative at the same time. Yeah, you you are the founder of TriTank. Yeah. Tell us, <laughs> yeah. Tell us a little bit about that, uh, the, the rationale behind TriTank and yeah, some some of the thinking that went behind that. Yeah, you can tell a lot of it just from the name itself. Uh, we're tri tank. Uh, the where we what we were thinking about was a think tank, but beyond just coming up with ideas. If I mean the way that ministry functions, if you give a even a, an amazingly good idea to a, to a minister, the possibility that they're going to have the time, resources, whatever they need to be able to just go out and carry it out, especially if it is something that has not been tried uh, somewhere else, is going to be less. It's just the realities of ministry as they are today, because we have fewer people in churches, fewer ministers in churches. And so we said, instead of just being a think tank, how do we make it? What could we do to actually become a place that goes out and tries these things so that we can be an action research laboratory to go out and try these as experiments? And so we became, instead of a think tank, a tri-tank. It's a cheeky name. But it's memorable, and um, and and so that's exactly what we do. That we wanted to also to to begin to change the the framework of, of of our minds. If you think about it, the way we have these mindsets that say failure is bad, and anyone who's involved in any sort of innovative work, you know that in order to really be doing something that's worthwhile, you have to be able to risk the fact that it could go wrong and it could fail. And for us, for example. Nine out of ten of our experiments do fail. They don't. They don't work as well as we'd we'd had hoped. Uh, sometimes just because there wasn't the there wasn't a there there or there wasn't. I'll give you an idea, uh, an example. 
there was, I had this bright idea, right? As people are less in church, I kept thinking like, well, we all have to find community somewhere. So where are people finding community? And I had this, this, this brilliant insight, I thought anyways, that people were finding it by participating in group exercises. And if you ever take a look, for example, at uh, the Soul Cycle, which are these spinning studios of the uh, spinning studios are these bicycles that go nowhere, right? Uh, and people, you go in there, the lights are dim on the wall. It says, find your soul. And it's and then the class begins and the, the instructor's like, come on, this day was made for you. You can do it. Go further, go fast, faster, and all these other things. And I was like, oh my goodness, just throw in the Jesus in there. You got a sermon going on. So I said, ha, brilliant idea. What would happen if we were to mix a spinning class with an actual liturgical with a Eucharist. And I said, what if we put those two together? And well, uh, the outcome was not what we thought. As, as it turns out, and, that, and by the way, I don't mean together, like literally while you're spinning, you're trying to take the Eucharist and like, body of Christ, uh, blood of Christ. Uh, but rather afterwards, well, we're already together and we've had this euphoric sort of moment of of, of being on the bike and finishing. But what we didn't think about was the fact that and and what we found out by doing this experiment was that people who are finding their spiritual home by being, if you will, their community by being in group exercise classes, well, they're already finding it in, in group exercises classes. So we were basically, it was no different than opening up a new church, trying to compete with an established church. There was all, these people are already finding it. So you'd have to create it. So it was we had a lot of interest in it. We had a, but we discovered that those people are there, but they're already finding it. So, but even though that experiment may not have worked the way we wanted it to work, what's interesting about it is that we took the chance, right? And and we came up with a methodology by which we do this so that we're not always betting the house as we're trying new things. And so it was a very, it was an eight week test. We tested it out. It was very inexpensive. And we were able to do it in what we call the minimum viable prototype to test. It didn't work, but we learned along the way as well. Tell, tell me more about the, this uh, this process of uh, especially the design thinking. I, I think this would be new for most people listening to us. What's, what's design thinking? And maybe your own background in that, in, in design thinking. Sure. So design thinking is a methodology that came about in the 60s and 70s is when it, when it sort of began. And then by the 80s, it was it was really going into high gear, as it were. Basically, what other terms for it are user centered design, human centered design. And what it is, is when a, in most cases, this comes from the business world, right? A, a corporation sits down and, and thinks like, if I'm creating something for someone named Tony, right? Let's say you're the persona that they're building for, who's a male of, of more or less this age, who lives in New York, who does this. They're like, how do we create in such a way that he's most likely to use it, to get the most benefit out of it? So we're like, well, that's a that's a beautiful way of sort of beginning because a lot of times when we're thinking of uh, designing something new in ministry, we have really well-meaning people that sit around the table and then they just try to come up with something but they don't think about, they don't spend the time to really get to know, if you will, the persona, those whom, for whom they're building it for. And so that's what's different about this. Uh, so we came up with a three-step process. Design thinking in, in the more professional setting would have about 12 steps. Uh, you will see different variations of it. Um, and we're, I'm like, oh, there's no way that people will remember 12 steps. So why don't we bring it down to three steps? Plus it's Trinitarian. It seems to sound good. Let's do it with three steps. And so the three steps are simple. 
it is step number one, uh, it, which is the empathy stage, which is where you actually look look for insights about the audience that you're creating for. This is the discovery phase when you begin to try to figure out. So again, going back to the example of well-meaning people like you or I sitting around the table. If you and I were to sit around a table to try to come up with something for young kids, right, to to be able to come and and, and partake in our church, well. I'm 50 years old. I have more gray hair than I have non-gray hair at this point. It's like, um, are we really the best ones to know what a young person uh, knows about life or what they care about or how they do it? No. So step number one is the discovery. We need to go out and find out the most we can about young people. So what are they doing? What are they like? What are they? So this means having conversations with them, figuring out where are you finding your spirituality? Where are you finding community? Where are you finding transcendence? Then having to define the word transcendence for them because they won't know it. You know, so you you really try to get as much as possible information about them before you go to step number two. Step number two is the fun stage. We all love this step because it's where we actually get to create something new. But now we are informed by the ideas that came to us while we were doing the insight phase, while we were doing the discovery and learning more about them, we're like, ha ha. So they listen to podcasts. That's amazing. Young people listen to podcasts. I wonder if there's an opportunity for us to create a podcast for young people. Oh, they, uh, they play a lot of games and they're on Twitch a lot. Well, I wonder if there's an opportunity for us to create like maybe a place for them to hang out and have deeper conversation about faith on Twitch, those types of things, right? Based on the research. And then finally, step number three is you go out and try it. And within each one of the steps, there's there's different smaller steps. Like in the discovery phase, how do you actually find out the 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 information? How do you get to know the people that you're designing for better? In step number two, there's multiple ways of coming up with ideas. You can do spend a day in their shoes. You can sit around and do brainstorming with a sort of new formula for it. And then in step number three, you look at what's the minimum viable prototype, right? What's the least amount that we have to spend on something to figure out if there's a there there before we go out and, and actually do it. And an example of this would be like, if you're telling me, oh, what we really need to do in order to bring in revenue for our congregation is set up a coffee shop. It's like, that's great. Have you figured out, you know, have you done all the other steps to figure out that? And you're like, yes, I know that there's a market for it. We're in a perfect spot for it. Okay, I'm like, amazing. What's the minimum viable prototype? Instead of going out and building or renting a, a facility or or building, you know, getting a, a food truck or something. It's like, all right, what if you just set up a table outside or a little cart, rent a cart for a weekend or during a weekday when you think most people are there and do coffee for a week and see what it's like. See if people stop in or not. See if that is something that people will avail themselves or if you're only going to compete with Starbucks and does not be able to do well. So that's a minimum viable prototype. So and as you're trying, then you iterate, you make changes or you decide this isn't something we're going to really get going well let's do something else so that's the three steps you do the discovery phase you do the idea phase and then you do the 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 actually go out and try it phase how have you found churches and clergy react to this to this idea first when you first <laughs> started it right and then because you said this started five years ago when yeah it was a different world but then the pandemic happened and suddenly it's a different world again yeah. Right. The, so the pandemic actually for innovation, I think, for those of us who are trying to get to change uh, the, the church to change in some ways and to do things a little bit differently. I believe that the, the pandemic in some ways was able to prove to people. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that it was good. I will never say that the pandemic that killed you know more than a million people in the United States was good. Yeah, no. But I think what it did is it proved to us that we can be more flexible than we think. 
Mm-hmm. We can be more flexible. We uh, Before the pandemic, uh, the percentage of congregations that were digital were, it, it was a, such a small number, nobody even like looked at it. The, it. the only way that you can really do church was to do it in person. And I still think, I, listen, the value of doing church in person, no one will ever be able to take that away from me as the, as the most beautiful part of it. But what we didn't think about, for example, before the pandemic, was the fact I, I did we did some research during the pandemic and it turns out I was talking to this gentleman uh, out of a church in in Palm Springs and he was telling me about the fact that uh, I was asking him what do you think about digital church and do you get enough the same of it what are your thoughts on it and he was telling me about it and he said something almost in passing he says to me it's like well you know on sun- Sunday mornings it's good you know to to be able to get up and it's good to have a plan B and then he just went on. I said, could you go back for a second? Tell me more. What do you mean by a plan B? It's like, oh, yeah, you get to be a certain age where you wake up on Sunday morning and your mobility is you just can't move. You're you're either in a lot of pain, your muscles or your arthritis, whatever happens that you can't move. And, and there's at that point, your only two options are I go to church in pain and then I'm going to likely be a pain to the people in church because I'm in pain or. I can stay home and miss this this opportunity to be with my people and to and to be at church. So by having this plan B, it allows those of us who have mobility issues mm-hmm. to be able to still participate in church. And I was like, I never would have thought about that. If if the pandemic hadn't happened and we had started digital church, or if somebody even after that happens had mentioned that there's this plan B, right? And that's what we mean. That's a that's a, an amazing case by the way, right there, of also human-centered design, of, of design thinking, which is when was the last time that we took time to really get to know the people that we're ministering to and whether or not our church is serving exactly their needs, right? Are we doing the best that we can to meet the needs that they have in today's world? And this is important because life changes, everybody changes, right? I'll give you another example since we're we're talking about Hispanics here. A lot of congregations, at least in our denomination, the, the Episcopal Church, end up putting uh, the Spanish service midday on a Sunday, like 1 p.m. It's very traditional for, for Spanish church to be at 1 p.m. on Sunday. And what we don't think about is, A, that maybe they're one day off and they're wanting to spend it with family, that now we've taken that away from them. We're sort of interrupting their day halfway through. Two, a lot of Hispanics particularly in the service industry work on Sundays and the and the service industry is filled with Hispanics. So we're saying, if you want to participate in church, you can only do it on Sunday at 1 p.m. I remember one time I was talking to someone and I said, hey, what if we did it like Sunday evening? It's like, well, that means my day would be longer, said the, the, the priest to me. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly it. Your day would be longer, so we shouldn't do it. We shouldn't meet people where they are because your day would be longer, right? It's like, what what happened to trying to, to reach people with this good news that we have to share? So that, and but that's the work that excites me, by the way, because when we do more discovery, here's something else we discovered. 72% of Latinos prefer, are either monolingual in English or prefer their information in English or are fully bilingual in English and don't mind receiving it in English. That's 72%. But most of the time when we're doing Latino ministry, we're thinking only of the 28%, which are either prefer their information in Spanish or are monolingual in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, my mother's in that category. So I totally I'm not saying that we need to discard that category or not be of service to them. But I'm just saying that when we're going out there and we're like, oh, we cannot do Latino ministry because we don't speak Spanish. The good news is 
hey, they don't either. So do it in English, but with with doing it culturally Latino, right? Being able to be uh, ecclesiastically flexible that we bring in some of their preferred saints or first communions, whatever is is of, of importance to them and the community. So that's what it means to really do uh, design thinking in a, in a way that that works for the church. Yeah, that's that's great. So did you did you get a little pushback early on mm. when you were trying to do this? Sorry, I forgot that was a question yeah. you actually asked me. Yeah. So at, so here's how I I, I, I still think it, it works a little bit this way. Um, I divide it into thirds. And this has been so, I think, since day one of TriTank. There's a third of people that I go and I talk about our experiments who are like, oh, my God, I'm totally in. Yes, yes, yes. How do we do this? Let me in. Let me help you. Let me be one of your partner congregations. Then there's a third who are like, oh, you're so cute with little experiments, but we're okay. We're doing fine. We're a large enough congregation. We have enough resources. It's all going to be fine. Don't you worry about it. It's all there. And then there's the other third that are like, hmm, I think that you're probably the spawn of Satan. And at some point, I'm going to have to stop you from doing this, right? I've been accused of trying to kill Sunday. I've been accused of many things in, in this work. In fact, uh, there was a magazine last year we put out a movie about what we think are three scenarios of the future of the church. And the title on the magazine was literally how to kill a church as they were reviewing this film. So I've been called the church killer as well by for, for doing this work, but we do it faithfully uh, rest assured that I am centered on prayer every day and that I try to only follow the spirit faithfully. I'm not trying to kill a church. And, you know, if I had that much power, I think I'd, I'd use it for, for good, not, not for so. But so I think those are just it. I focus on the people that are open to it or that are very much involved and, and want to be involved. I let the others, hopefully, this is this is not uncommon, by the way. And there's there's a bell curve of for innovation. Uh, and when people first begin, right, there's those people who will stand outside of the Apple store to be the first ones to get the new iPhone. And then there's the the ones that follow after that, the, the main adoption, late adoption. Mm -hmm. And then there's the laggards. The laggards will eventually come along just because of the way it is. I've I've had people tell me uh, over my dead body, will we make changes to this church? Like, well, all right. So I guess we'll see you at your funeral. You know, it, it, it'll happen. But eventually we need to change. So you your work right now has focused mostly on parishes, on churches, local churches. Are, are there other organizations that you are in conversation with? Maybe a diocese or, you know, seminaries or some nonprofits? We actually, we have worked, although we do work with individual congregations a lot, we are denominationally, we're also doing some ecumenical work. We, we're working on this project called Project Phoenix with the Lutherans, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America and the PCUSA, the Presbyterians, uh, on this, this Project Phoenix, which is we're trying to create an uh, experimental prototype faith community for people in their 20s is what we're trying to create with them. Uh, so that that's that's at the denominational level. We are also working. Some dioceses have invited us in. Uh, we're working very closely with the diocese of Vermont, uh, trying to do more. And in in that case, I'm having lots of one-on-one -on -one meetings and coaching of their congregations as they try to walk into this slowly. You know, we try to walk into this 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 world of that's changing so rapidly around us. And and also we don't just work with Episcopal congregations. Um, we we talk to just about anyone who wants to be open to the idea of change. Uh, we've also tried to work outside of the United States. We've worked with the church in Cuba. 
the church in Puerto Rico we're, we're starting to do some work with. And we're also working with the Church of Scotland, which is the Presbyterian Church, oddly, in, in the in the UK and the, the Church of England itself with some congregations there. And we're big supporters of the Hardage movement in the UK and that we're, we're trying to bring here to the U.S., which is kind of like a balanced scorecard, you know, it's how to look at your congregation's vitality. So there's a there's a lot of work. And um, yeah, so we, we, we'll we work with anyone who wants to work and talk about innovation. Every week I set aside a certain number of hours in my week, literally just to be present to people who want to have a conversation with someone about innovation. So in my experience, for, for immigrant churches, right, which is a lot of the Latino churches, we we have to innovate right we have to to yeah. make things up it's the reality right? actually it's funny a, go ahead a friend of my he's chinese he, he's uh from my dad he, he's a preacher and i remember this is more than 20 years ago because i was still in college he talked about being invited to preach a 2 a.m service and uh he he thought it was 2 p.m yeah uh but it was a 2 a.m and they came to pick him up and he said, you, you want to take a nap and we'll come pick you up at you know, 1 a.m. And it was all restaurant workers. Oh, my goodness. There were a bunch of Chinese restaurant workers. They all get out at 2 and they go to this church. Look at and that. And they needed him to preach. And it was a weekday at 2 a.m. And he wow. said hundreds and hundreds of people in Chinatown would show up to 2 a.m. weekday service. And that was the because, you know. Sunday morning they're working it's one of their busiest days they can't they can't go worship yeah and what's interesting about that is the things that we would call innovative are not for the migrant churches if you will they're just necessities like if yeah, we don't do yeah. this the service at two in the morning then we don't reach our, our community but we can learn a lot from that by the way those churches that are that are not so willing to change that that are not not as open so, so what what have you observed? Because I, I know you work a lot with the, the Hispanic Ministries Office at in the Episcopal Church, and you you see what's going on. How, yeah, what what do you see going on in in the Latino churches and immigrant churches that um, that's different, or you know, whether it's greater challenges or, or more opportunity, places to flourish. What what are you seeing? Well, there's there's a couple of sort of bedrocks to it right uh, i it, it's not a surprise to anyone that the mostly latino churches uh if we were to only look at the word and whether or not a church or congregation is sustainable would have a problem because the the way that they're used to in in the more anglo settings at least in our denomination is there's a stewardship campaign and people do their pledges and then you sort of do your budget based on that that's not the norm, as we know, in Latino churches and for Hispanics. Uh, a lot of times it's based on what they have that week, what little they may have. We know the the, the income disparity between Anglos and Hispanics is, is a real thing. And also what we see is that a lot of the times we're really living into the time and talent. They do more of their talent. If you need something fixed, if you need something painted, if you need some work around the yard, that's where Latino members of the congregation will step in and and really be present to that to do that work. So what that is giving us, though, is making it very clear that we need to think about how to do church with with Latinos differently than the than the model which we've taken, which is pretty much, oh, well, we have an Episcopal church that does it in English. We can just do the same model and put it in Spanish. That's just not going to work. We have to be more willing and, and open to the possibilities of 
uh, one, you know, and and I'm glad to see the the movement towards not only uh, as much of not only a fan, but as much as I got myself out of residential seminary, the ability for people to do other non-traditional sort of seminary routes to get their education, like what CDSP is doing, what general seminary is doing, which is this these hybrid models that that exists out there. Because the reality is we know that people are going to seminary at a at an older age, not right out of college, if they go to college. And for Latinos, it's going to be very difficult for someone to pick up their whole family and take them to seminary or to be away from their family for three years while they're at seminary. Who's going to be who's going to earn revenue, you know, the money aspect of it. So we can't keep asking for such a large sacrifice and then say, like, well, we don't understand why there's no Latinos here. It's like, well, you're asking a little too much of the sacrifice. So these these new models of, of educating seminarians, I think, is is wonderful for it. But we also have to keep thinking about how do we structure church in a way that it can, you know, we have some very wealthy congregations and we have then very poor congregations. You know, in the book of Acts, uh, they held all things in common. How do we perhaps think about how more wealthier congregations, more wealthier dioceses, for example, also help those congregations be where they need to be, which is amongst the, the poor part, more vulnerable part of, of our communities, which is generally where the Latinos are. So we need to figure that out. And, and thirdly, I would add to that is also the, the concept of bivocationality. We need to stop thinking of that as a less than sort of a ministry, but rather that that is a full ministry and mm-hmm. how we can support those ministers who are doing bivocational work. And also how do we empower more of the laity to take on more of the responsibility if the priest is bivocational, right? Just those three things alone are so vastly different than the current model for most of our Anglo congregations, which is a you know residentially seminary trained uh, at this point priest, uh, a congregation that pledges and that has enough resources to do its its own sort of life, and third, where a lot of the laity is not as involved, they they mostly come and receive on Sundays and and participate in some programs. A few percentage participate in programs throughout the week. So those models, we need to we need to really just we can no longer think that the model that worked for the Anglo congregations is going to work for the Latino congregations. Yeah, you mentioned the seminaries earlier. What what else what else can seminaries do to support innovation? Right, you as somebody who's been trained in a residential seminary, but now championing the innovative work in parishes. Maybe what what would you have wished seminary education had been like or taught you that would have uh, yeah helped you be be naturally more innovative? But but also what kind of books do you think we need out of these theologians, right? Because we we have the classics, right? But I don't know how the classics, which are important, right? But how Mary. how do they help us be innovative? I feel like we need we need a new theology, right? Almost a new ecclesiology. Well, we need. We certainly need to consider our ecclesiology and what we consider church. Um, I, I bet you that there would be a lot of people who would not consider an in the middle of the week, 2 a.m. service to be church. If it's not on Sunday, it's not church, right? Um, so there's, we need to change how we think and what we think uh, church is. So we need to think about our ecclesiology a little bit more especially because young people are not necessarily going to, as you as you all know, they're not rushing to tear down our doors on Sunday to come into church. They, uh, they're they not. They're not coming, and we need to figure out how to reach them, right? So 
I wish that seminary, you know, we need to think about where innovation has already happened in the church. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, the creed was an innovation. Hey, let's put that together in one sheet of paper where we all believe so that we can actually all believe the same thing rather than everyone believing what they do at their own church, right? Like that was an innovation at the time. Martin Luther and putting uh, the hymns that he wrote were to bar songs because he knew people knew those songs. He's like, that was an innovation at the time to getting people to participate, obviously doing it in the vernacular of our own language, whatever language is spoken. That was an innovation of the time. Uh, even just the, the, the cross or crucifix. For the first 600 years of the church, as best as we can tell, the cross was rarely used to represent the church. It was mostly the fish. Uh, and then when the cross started to be used, first it was very ornate and they had a lot of uh, diamonds and whatnot on it to represent the victory that Christ had over the cross. And then when eventually they started putting the body of Christ in a crucifix form, Christ was very much alive with his eyes open saying, don't worry, I got this, right? It wasn't until the end of the first millennia that the more passionate Christ was on the crucifix. All those changes along, it wasn't that we thought less or different or, or that we had changed our theology on Jesus. It was just what the people needed at the time in order to be more involved in the life of Jesus and also vice versa so that we could see you know, God's story is also similar to us. God saw suffering of his own son on the cross, right? So the same way we can think about as we look forward and we think about not only just the technologies that are coming into place, but what what is church and how does church look and feel Young people are telling us very clearly some some things that we would consider to be, well, uh, there, there will be people who will have a lot of problems, shall we say, mm -hmm. with the ecclesiology that young people are bringing. I'll give you some examples uh, in this Project Phoenix that I've been talking about. Young people, the, the thing that resonates the most in the focus groups that we've been running with it certainly is the inclusivity of it, this radical inclusiveness. So if your church is inclusive, how do you tell that story so that young people will listen. Unfortunately, when you begin by saying this is a church or this is Jesus, they automatically put up some, some boundaries. They, they, they protect themselves because of, of how misused the name of Jesus has been in, in their view. This is these are the things that they will tell you, right? They they think of Jesus and they think, uh, you know, it's just uh, it's someone who's judging me, someone who's telling me that I'm doing it wrong. It's like, oh, that's not the Jesus. It, the radical inclusiveness is what Jesus really was. So what we need seminaries to really, I think, do also is to allow for some more creativity in the work that we do, to allow for some more. I would encourage, for example, in contextual education, anytime someone is assigned to a church or someone, put them in a church that's vastly different from the one they came from. So they start to see a difference. If you came from a very low church, see what a high church is like. See that it's not as dangerous. Because it is only when we start to put sort of two things together. It's like, oh, they do that, but we do this. What if we did this third thing? That's when creativity sort of starts to happen. In the in the science of innovation, is called is referred to as the adjacent possible you can only really jump ahead one room next to if you think of it as as you're living in a room that has four walls and four doors you can only really go in innovation to the very next one you can't skip three rooms or four rooms right that that those are the visionaries leonardo leonardo uh uh in the in the renaissance drawing helicopters before there were even engines right da vinci knew he was like four rooms ahead we're like oh dude we don't even know what you're talking about you're just crazy right 
So when someone comes to church and says, we need to jump ahead a few more rooms, we have to realize that we need to go first to the room. So we need to teach a little bit of this uh, change management. Appreciative inquiry is a beautiful way of bringing about change in congregations. Uh, those are all things, those types of things. Because I, I, from my experience of seminarians, not just from having been one, but when I see seminarians that are going out into the world now is they have all these visions. They want to change the world. They want to do everything. And then they get to their first placement and they're like, oh, I can't even move the candle because the altar guild won't let me. Right. So they come with all these dreams to change everything and then nothing can be changed. So how do we teach them to be leaders, theologically based leaders to lead through change? Those are the types of things I think that that seminary could be focused on. And and. I think also in, in the discernment process, as we find people, that we need to be very clear with people that we're probably not ordaining you for the country parson anymore, right? We're ordaining you for a new style of church. Are you ready for that? Because if you're only thinking, I'm going to be a country parson, and I'm going to be out in some rural little church, and it's going to be amazing, and that's just going to be my life, I don't think that's the reality anymore. Yeah, so, so one of the, the most recent innovation and one of the reasons i think people go to you for help churches go to you for help is uh, is money lack of money right yeah. and, and i always remind people that offering is a very recent american innovation because before this you know throughout europe the church was a state institution yep. yeah right and you you can still go throughout england where there were churches inside of some rich person's estate and there, yep. it was a rich person's obligation to pay the pastor, maintain the church. Chapel of ease, as it were. Yeah. yeah. And and then you come to the U.S. and they rent the pews, right? All the old churches, the, yeah. the pews had the little door. Family yeah. had to pay rent for that pew. And then there was the innovation of the free church. Yep. Yep. Yeah. But now, but then eventually you move to an offering play. But those churches were already built. So I tell people, I remind them, you know, your 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 church, your cathedrals. They never depended on offering plates. What you're trying to do now with fewer people, you couldn't do that when it was full. Correct. Yeah. When it was full, you didn't depend on people putting money on those plates. They were, yeah. big, you know, huge benefactors. Yeah. Benef yeah. 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 You know, the, the whole patronage idea, right? Benefactors and patronage of churches, which, which doesn't exist anymore today. So how how do you yeah as you think of innovation right and and unfortunately we have that we're tied with that that model if you want a traditional church right it's very much tied in that model you have to bring some income to be to be able to exist so yeah yeah what what are you th thinking what what are some fresh ideas on those you know that is an excellent question uh, about money because. I, as I do this work and I go around, I always hear people, if only we had the resources of St. Swithin's over there, or if only we did this, or if only that, right? And I'm going to the UK next week to to talk about this theology of, I don't know if it's a full-fledged theology. I think Sam Wells has done the best job of actually hashing it out into a theology of abundance. But here's basically what it means. God has given us everything we need to do the work we're called to do where we are. And the more that we can accept and believe that, then the better we will be at our work. God is not calling my little church in Los Angeles to be Trinity Church Wall Street, right? My little church in Los Angeles is going to be its own unique little church for the people here. And we have to figure out who, what are the resources that we have? What are the gifts that we all have, right? Does, does this start to sound biblical, right? How many fish can you find? How many bread can you find? 
And what do we do with these, right? And we have to believe that God will indeed multiply them, that, that God will, will give us enough to do the work we're called to do. So that the moment that we understand and believe that, then new opportunities open of, of possibility for us to do this work. And, and we also have to be, uh, be mindful of the fact that asking people to support this work is not uh, putting our hat out and asking for a handout. It is literally asking people to invest in the, in, the, in the reign of God. So being able to go to someone and say like, hey, don't you want to support this work? We're doing this and we're doing that. But that also means, by the way, on our side, those of us asking, that we have to have work that is worth supporting. That we have to go to someone and say, look, we're, we're reaching out to the homeless population in Los Angeles. We're doing this. We're doing that. We're doing formation. All of those things. Uh, and, and that's what's important. So I think that I, I'm done with the mindset of we don't have enough. Because uh, if, if you talk to billionaires, by the way, they will tell you that they don't have enough, that they need more, right? It, wherever you are, you will always have this feeling. And I think that that's... Uh, that comes from another source, if you will. Screwtape would be well-pleased by, by where this is coming from. But I think we need to realize that we do have enough. We have enough to do the work we're called to do. And it might look different than what we're thinking. It might mean that we need to have a bivocational priest rather than a full-time priest, and that we all have to sort of do more of the work together because we don't have a professional clergy there full-time. All right. So it looks different. It is different. But does that mean that it's in any way less godly or less presenting of where God is calling us to be? So that's where I come on that is, is that I'm done with the whole conversation of we don't have enough resources. We have enough resources to do the work. We really do. Tell me, tell me a little bit. Tell, give me an example of one of your most, most successful tries so far. You know, one that gets a lot of... Uh, the people really like is, uh, are you familiar with the Alexa speakers, the smart speakers at home that people have at home? You can turn off your lights with them. You can turn on your lights with them. One of the things that we did is we created for a, a skill. When you do an app for the smart speakers called the skill, and we created one called Episcopal Prayer. So if you go to your, you activate it in your speaker and you say, Alexa, open Episcopal Prayer. She'll say, the Lord be with you. And you're like, a, you know, a good Christian, you'll be like, and also with you. And then she'll say, let us pray. And then she'll lead you through morning or evening prayer based wow. on the time of day where you're at. And you might think, well, that's kind of interesting. But about 500 people on a regular basis are availing themselves of that as an option to do the morning or evening prayer. And here's what's really, I think, best of that. We know that people who engage with Scripture uh, three or four times a week, at least four times a week, actually, not three or four, four times a week, uh, those people are their lives are, are changed or they're transformed, right? They're like more likely to be, they're less likely to be depressed, more likely to be more philanthropically minded. They're more likely to be good citizens or less likely to gamble, less likely to over drink. And they're more likely to go to church on Sunday. So if you want to grow your congregation, just get people to engage with scripture more regularly. That That's one of the things that, that we can do. That was a very successful one. I've mentioned a few times Project Phoenix, and I'm super excited by this one, though, because we really, are, I think, are on the cusp of doing something, of putting together sort of a mold of what this experimental prototype faith community for people in their 20s might look like, because we need to do something to reach this whole generation. Uh, you know, Pew, Pew Research is where we get the numbers of nuns, not the ones with the habit, but the ones that that are that say no, a nun when it comes to what denomination or what religious preference they have. But interestingly enough, if you look at Pew, 
there's another number that if you look at the overall numbers from Pew, the number comes up at 6%, and that is the neithers, those who are neither spiritual nor religious. But when you break that number down, uh, when you look at the raw data, and you go between 13 and 39, that number is 32%. So young people are selecting neither at a huge rate. And what that means is that they're no longer interested in even having the conversation about spirituality. They're like, that's just not a part of my life. I don't need it. I don't want it. Thank you very much. And we should see that as, as a warning sign of, of where society is sort of headed. What happens if in the next 10 years, let's say that number grows up to be 50% and 50% of the population not having at all an interest in uh, in anything spiritual or religious? What would that look like? What, what, what would it mean? If you think our discourse is bad now where we can't even talk about something that we disagree on before we start like wanting to punch each other, what's going to happen in 10 years when 50% of the people don't even have any sort of, uh, and I am, by the way, obviously associating morality with those that want to have, I think relig- that, that most of us, that's where we get our, our, our morals from, is from religion or some sort of spiritual path. So if we're not even willing to do that, then our, what's going to happen to our civic life in 10 years if, if those numbers keep going up? So the ramifications of these are great. I'm not even talking about whether or not there's going to be people in our buildings. I certainly think we need to have more people in our buildings. But the question is, if we're not willing to adapt ourselves and to meet young people where they are now and tell them about this good news of Jesus and tell them that life can be better for them, then uh, it's, it's, it's only going to get worse for us. What's your hope for uh, for Tritank? <laughs> um, well, I, I'm I, I have a um, I have a propensity towards action, so I I don't often just hold hopes out. I I also just go out and do something about them. So Tritank right now is focused. Uh, we have a three point what I call we. And by the way, is I, I'm I'm nestled within lifelong learning at Virginia Theological Seminary. So I have conversation partners there and and great people there at at, at the staff there, but. Most of the work of TriTank is just me going out there and and actually trying to get it done. But we are working with what we call experiment partners, people that we partner with. If let's say that you, Tony, are running a congregation and you have an idea and you come to us and we're like, wow, that does sound innovative. We would fund the idea. We would give you a small stipend to do it. And then you, we would see what happens as long as we get to then share the results with the rest of, of, of the church. So that is one of our points uh, is focus, do more work around the church through our experiment managers. Two, we're going to be focusing a lot more on our research, uh, working together again with the Presbyterian Church and the Lutheran Church. We're going to be putting out some surveys into the field uh, twice a year to figure out where people are in their spirituality and their religion and their life, particularly young families, because young adult families are, I think if I only had a hundred bucks and that's how I needed to grow my church, that's where I, that's who I would go after. I would go after young families because after you have your first child, it's generally when you're like, huh, you mean life is not just about me anymore? Oh, I need to find some meaning. And that's an opportunity to reach people. So we're going to focus more on the research and be able to publish more of this research so that more people can have greater insights. Going back for a second to the design thinking so that you can have more of those insights for the discovery phase. So we're going to be doing that. And then finally, the third point is we're going to be focusing on Christian formation. Uh, we need to move beyond just thinking of church as a place to be on Sunday, where it's sort of like a social thing, but rather, how can it become a seven-day thing? How can it become, how can we help people, those who are walking this path, take their next step with God? And and I think that those are areas that are that are 
ample fields for opportunities to 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 do good work. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's my dream, but we're already doing it. So that's my dream. If I had a dream, I would have a lot more staff so that we could do this faster, so that we could do uh, more work of this because the church, uh, the, the limitation of having only one person doing this full time is that it is only one person doing this full time, right? And I can only spend the 50 hours a week or whatnot on it. Uh, I have to let other. So if we had several of me, imagine if we had someone doing this full time only for and looking for innovation and to share innovation and to do that work only in Hispanic ministry. That would be awesome, right? We would be able, especially considering the demographics of this country, if we that's a place where the church needs to be more. So that would be great if we had uh, more staff and we had other people doing it, for example, in Asian ministries, or and we would continue to be able to expand and then all share together the learnings from each other. I think that would be a great place, but uh, I unfortunately have my budget cut this year instead of growing. So it's, it's, it's a reality, but even with a budget cut, I'm like, God gives us what we need to do the work we're called to do. And so if if anybody listening to this feels uh, so tempted to write a huge check so that we can grow it, I'd be more than happy to take that. But other than that, we're just going to go forward uh, as it is and and continue to we have our focus and we're going to go towards those goals. Or imitate you, right? Oh, yes. There's just so much need. There's no competition. You, I mean, you're fact, already busier than you are. Here's something that has not been released. It will actually be in our newsletter uh, coming up in September for anyone who's listening. If you're listening before our newsletter comes out in September, get your you're in ahead of this. Is we're gonna we're gonna actually put, uh, try out some something new. That's what we do, right? We're gonna have one tri tank fellow. So we're gonna accept applications from people, and what that will mean is we will give that person a stipend to. To spend time, what we want is them for them to shadow, learn, be part of the team as much as possible. But at the same time, we will expect uh, five or six experiments. We will fund the experiments, but they are responsible for going out there, finding ideas, doing the legwork, putting it together, doing the mission canvas, everything necessary to do an experiment. And we will fund it, but they they should do five experiments over the course of the year as they're a tri-tank fellow. And I think I'm super excited by that because I think that it'll be really cool to see what others joining this. And then what happens when that fellow goes out into their own diocese or into their own church and, and continues with what they've learned over that that past year of really like trying deeply and, and learning from experts, having conversations with futurists, having conversations with experts on change management, those types of things. I think it'll be sort of like a, a year of in, nine months you know, of intensive innovation learning. So I'm I'm really really excited by that. Wow, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So oh. anybody who wants to find out more can go to tritank.org and sign up for our newsletter. That's t r y t a n k dot o r g to sign up for our monthly newsletter. Little commercial Thank you for so us. Much, <laughs> no, you. my pleasure, Tony. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this was great. Esta es la conversación más larga que tuvimos en inglés. <laughs> sí, sí, lo es. <laughs> Para los que no saben, we <laughs> también hablamos español. We eh? Only talk in Spanish. Pero yes, that's right. <laughs> for the larger audience, we went, we went English today. Yes, so which is fine. <laughs> yep, yep. So thank you so much for your time, and yeah, we look forward to to hearing more about all the exciting things you're doing. Excellent. Thank you so much, and thanks everyone for listening. Keep up the good work.
The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides these podcasts as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own, and their appearance on this podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or an entity they represent. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.